Welcome everyone to Finance Podcast Week and the special live stream panel, Personal Finance in the Pandemic with Paula Pant from Afford Anything, Money Girl Laura Adams, Financially Savvy in 20 Minutes with uh, Natalie Torres Haddad, and Vanille Makakwa and the Property Magicians Podcast. For those of you who may be joining us for the first time, Finance Podcast Week is a week of live stream sessions like this one from top finance podcasters and experts from all around the world. We also have exclusive pre-release episodes on the Finance Podcast Week channel for free, and you can replay any of the panels on the Finance Podcast Week podcast channel. Download the Podbean app and follow the Finance Podcast Week channel to receive notifications in real time about all of the live streams and specially released episodes for the week. Finance Podcast Week is brought to you by Podbean. We're a podcast hosting company and monetizing platform that, uh, that is home to over 500,000 podcasts. And as you're joining us for this session, you can see that we also offer the ability to live stream directly from the app to your audience. For everyone listening, you can also start your own live stream on free on Podbean for free. That dyslexia is really coming through here, huh? <laughs> The content of Finance Podcast Week is for informational purposes only, and you should not construe any information or other material as legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. Nothing contained on our site, live streams, or podcast constitute a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Podbean or any third-party service providers to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments. And with that, we'll go ahead and throw this off to our host, Laura Adams of the Money Girl Podcast. Take it away. Thank you so much. I want to thank everyone on the Podbean team for putting this together. Uh, Norma Jean, thank you for all your help. And it's just really great to be invited and participating in the event. So I'm thrilled to be here and speak on, on the behalf of all the, the panelists with me that we appreciate you having us. So I want to welcome everyone who's joining. I'm seeing a lot of people uh, coming in. We're going to be talking about personal finance in the pandemic. This is such a great great topic. I think we've all had uh, a lot of good experiences, bad experiences, and, and you know, certainly have a lot to learn uh, going forward about what's happened, but we have a lot to, of good information to share as well. So I would love to hear from our panelists about maybe what are some of the pros and cons that they've seen with the p pandemic as it's related to personal finances. Obviously, there are a lot of people who are hurting and, and millions who are going through financial hardship. But I think there also have been some highlights, some, you know, some uh, financial benefits that we've seen coming out of the pandemic for some people. So, you know, let's start out, maybe Paula, if you want to chime in, what are some pros and cons that you think the pandemic has brought when it comes to personal finances? Sure, absolutely. Two come to mind immediately. One is that uh, particularly towards the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of people who previously had not thought emergency funds were important suddenly realized why emergency funds were so important. And what I mean when I say that is that for many years, because we'd been in such a bull run, um, I'd heard from a lot of people anecdotally that, that they couldn't understand why they would keep any amount of money in cash, given that the market just seemed to consistently be going up and up and up, particularly people in their 20s who are too young to have experienced the Great Recession. Uh, if all they've known is an up market, then it's easy to mistake the market as being a high yield savings account. And so I think when the recession began, a lot of people um, understood 
you know, why it is, why it's important to keep cash reserves aside. And I think hopefully that lesson will stay with them throughout the rest of their lives and prepare them for future recessions. That's one positive lesson that may have come from this. Um, the second, and this is, I think, bo both a pro and a con, is that the uh, level of interest and the level of prevalence in day trading increased pretty significantly during the pandemic. A lot of people looked to, day, especially those who were unemployed, um, but still had, had money coming in, had uh, checks coming in, looked to day trading as a quarantine-friendly way of making money from home. And um, you know, st statistically, we've seen the numbers of day traders increase. The benefit to that is that people are taking an interest in investing. The downside to that is that they may not be looking towards long-term buy and hold investments. So I, that's both a, a pro and a con. Yeah, those are great. Terrific. Uh, Vandalay, how about you? What do you think are some pros and cons that you've seen related to the pandemic and personal finances? Okay. So uh, the first con, uh, do I have a note? Oh, sorry. <laughs> Ask. Hello? Yeah, we're getting a little. Yeah, we can hear you now. Okay. I'm not sure what's going on. I'm sorry. Um, so the first con that I would say is that a lot of people during the pandemic lost income streams, right? There's been people who lost a lot of jobs. Um, a lot of people lost jobs. But one of the things that I've seen as also a pro is that some people that have people that would never have thought of creating an extra stream of income or having a side hustle, people are now starting to think very deeply about that. And most people are actually jumping in and starting businesses and uh, creating extra streams of income. And not only that, it's that the pandemic has had people stay at home. Right, so most people had never heard of Zoom or even thought of the internet as a space that they can play in. And suddenly people are starting to start businesses online. And there's also this opportunity to work from anywhere. And we lost you there for just a minute. I could jump in if, if maybe her echo is. <laughs> yeah, Natalie, please do. Sure. Um, just to piggyback up on what they both just said, I, I think one of the conversations or many conversations that people are not having are, are forced to have those awkward conversations. So chiming in with your parents, if you have elderly parents, just you know, trying to see if they have their will set up, if they have all their finances in order, um, because maybe people aren't towards retirement yet, but you want to just check in and see how they're doing. And I think also the benefit I've seen is a lot of younger people, younger generation, not only are not only asking themselves a the question of like, what is my lifestyle? Am I really saving towards uh, or, or having an emergency fund or retirement? I think this is a way to make sure that um, for for them to prepare themselves for what we see as we've seen the recession prior and what it did for us. And so I think this is a way for them to prepare themselves better. Um, and I think a lot of people are also going through, um, you know, try to figure out what their short term and long term goals -term are. So, goals I are. so I think this is something that's been very helpful. Been very Oops, helpful. Sorry, I'm not Oops, sure if there's an, sure echo now. there's an echo now. Yeah, Vanilay, do we have you back? Do we have you back? Oh, yeah, I've been talking. I didn't know that like, <laughs> I was lost. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, what was what was the last thing that you guys heard? 
Yes. So you were talking about um, that there have been an increase of self-employed people, uh, the benefits of working from home and being able to start online uh, businesses, uh, which are fantastic points. So I don't know if there was anything else you want to add. Oh, yeah. I was saying that the pandemic has also made us aware of mental health and how most of us have not really tied in the importance of emotional well-being with money and our ability to keep um, making money and being financially stable. So the pandemic is starting to have us have these discussions where we're talking about anxiety, how uh, anxiety affects productivity and affects our ability to be creative and to um, uh, uh, have financial freedom. So I feel like that is both a con and a pro. Yeah, those are great. So Natalie, let me go back to you. We were talking about, uh, Paula was talking about the importance of an emergency fund. And I know you've overcome many challenges due to the pandemic. What role did your emergency fund play for you personally? For us, it was definitely a, (laughs) I want to say a lifesaver sounds a little dramatic, but on a personal note, we had our own medical um, emergencies come up literally the same week the pandemic or everything started to shut down in California. Um, and that having an emergency fund, we had more than six months. Um, and, and it's kind of like that discipline. I reminded myself we needed to make sure we always had that, especially the previous recession. I did not have that and unfortunately had to overcome a lot of challenges with that. This time around, it gave us a peace of mind knowing that um, if my husband and I needed to take some time off, which we did, we needed to make sure every, everything was in order, we were were more than okay. And I think that's one of the biggest things that I am also promoting now is kind of letting people know this is the reason why. As someone, we're young, you're not um, anywhere near retirement. And I think that's one thing that our generation sometimes feels like, oh, well, we have 20, 30 years before retirement. So it's not that necessary to have this kind of cushion. And the truth is many of us might encounter um, an illness within our within in ourselves or within our family that we have to step up and pay for, um, especially within the black and brown communities. And for me, I've dealt a lot with my own mental health and having extra money for therapy and other, you know, I always say it's extra options when you have enough money saved up. So being able to advocate that more for people and let them know if you don't, even if you feel like six months is way too much, starting off with at least every week to save up your first month, because what if you do lose your job? And I know a lot of people have lost their job um, unexpectedly, not just their, you know, pretty much everything that they were working towards, but knowing that they have one or two months saved up so they can afford to pay their mortgage or their rent um, and being able to afford some of those everyday living, not nothing luxury, but enough to get by. So I think that's one thing um, we've definitely been talking more about than, than prior to the pandemic, because I think too often we we overlook the importance of having that cushion, those extra options to be able to Um, afford your everyday living. And and especially when it comes to medical, we have insurance, but we still had to pay thousands of dollars out of pocket. Um, And if you have pets, if you have children, guess what? Things happen all the time. So having that extra cushion can really help, um, you know, set you up better instead of having to start from zero or using your credit card and get yourself more in debt. Yes, Paula, a question that I hear often from Money Girl listeners is, well, how much cash should I keep on hand? And where to keep it? You know, what advice can you give? Sure. What I would say is, 
three months of expenses is a minimum. So shoot for at least that amount. And then depending on your personal comfort level and depending on the uh, level of risk of some, some catastrophe, basically depending on the other security that you have, I would increase that to anywhere to up to 12 months. So that range of three to 12 months, depending on your risk level. And when I say risk level, what I mean is, uh, first of all, are you in the type of profession where uh, perhaps you're a freelancer or you're in an industry or, or job that is likely or has a higher likelihood of closing down or furloughing? If that's the case, then you'd want more saved. Uh, if you are a if you are single or a single income household, so you do not have the income of a partner to be able to offset a, a job loss, um, then you would also want to have more saved because uh, dual income households, you know, have have that that income diversity, that that multiple streams of income that come from having uh, money coming in from two people. So depending on those types of situations in your life, that, that range of three to 12 months. And to your question where to save it, uh, don't try to over-optimize it. Just pick a good high yield savings account um, and pick one, call it good enough, leave it there. And you know, don't, try to, don't try to squeeze a, a, little, a few more basis points out of it. Just leave it somewhere good enough and, and leave it alone. Right. Yeah. And to your point about risk, the the family that you have also plays a part. You know, do you have a large family? Um, right. Do you have kids that are at special needs? You know, what special circumstances might be going on in your family that would uh, cause you to need a higher emergency fund than, as you said, a single person? And definitely, I think there's a lot of confusion about where to put that emergency money. And in most cases, you want to keep it very, very safe, right? The whole point is, it's there for an emergency. And, I, and to your point, because the stock market has been so, uh, so good this year, many people have said, well, gosh, shouldn't I invest it? You know, it's, it's driving me crazy sitting at having it sit in that in that bank account earning next to nothing. And what I tell people is, yeah, that's the point. It's earning next to nothing because it is safe. And it's safe because you don't know when or if you may need it. Now, if someone has more than a year's worth of savings, they've got plenty of, of money, yeah, then I would say, okay, maybe some of that additional or extra emergency fund, that might be appropriate to do some, uh, some low-risk investing with that. Uh, but for most people, the FDIC-insured bank savings or high-yield savings account is going to be uh, the perfect place for it. All right, so let's talk a little bit about real estate. I've got three real estate experts with me on this panel. And so I would love to know how you think remote work is going to change perhaps uh, the future of real estate. Vandalay, what do you think? Is there anything that uh, you think might change uh, in terms of how we think about real estate and whether it's uh, the right move to buy or invest real estate? Oh, I love this question because I'm literally the remote work, a remote worker, right? So I live in Sri Lanka and I'm from South Africa. But so I think what I see happening with real estate is what, what I've seen from two different countries at the moment, Sri Lanka and South Africa, is that a lot of uh, places are now starting to look towards digital nomads um, and are actually all 
digital workers or employees, I don't know what we're going to call them now, but they're willing to make acceptances and allowances for that. They're willing to offer long-term stays. So I think that the way that we look at property in terms of how we used to buy the first home and then stay there for 20 years may completely change because now you have options. Why would you buy a home and stay in it if you can buy a home, rent it out and go rent uh, and use that money to go rent another home in, say, Bali or Thailand? So I think that we're going to see a lot of shifts. And I also think what uh, we also have to look at what's going to happen in terms of commercial property. How um, How is commercial property going to change? Because if you no longer have a lot of employees coming into the office, do we still need those big <laughs> offices and those big lofty buildings that a lot of the brands that we know um, work from? Or is it going to be the kind of, uh, or are we moving into a space where you can work, if you can work from anywhere in the world, why are you holding on to these big buildings? So that may mean that a lot of the commercial property then may start being converted into um, normal residential space in the future. So I think that we'll see a lot of flexibility in how we live and that most people may, instead of buying your home to live in, you may end up buying houses that you rent out to give yourself that flexibility. So we're no longer tied to the same, to the childhood home, so to speak. Great. Natalie, what about you? Do you think there's going to be any changes going forward when it comes to real estate ownership and investing? Absolutely. We're seeing that happen already. I'm in Los Angeles, so obviously I'm one of the ex most expensive markets in, this, in the country. But what we've seen a, a big shift is um, it, not only are people looking for being able to find a place that they can actually work from, that's something that's been something not really an issue prior because we're so used to co-working spaces. So I think that's going to be a big difference. And as far as rental property, I know people always ask the question, when's the time to invest? And truthfully, you have to know your market. Not every market's the same. Um, I invest out of state. And when I do, um, I let people know it's a different market than, you know, if you're in New York or Los Angeles, where, you know, you have your high peaks and your low peaks. And right now there's there is a market correction in, in some of these areas. So when it comes to maybe smaller town cities, you have a little bit of a more steady income in the sense where you know that there's not going to be much fluctuation as far as as rents go up. Right now, we're seeing a lot of rents not only being lowered in you know prime areas, but we're starting to see more and more people going away from the city. I'm in the main city. So it's it's interesting to see that was never the case before, especially when it comes to like commuting. Um, it's not just millennials and Gen Xers that are looking for, um, you know, good living space or that they can work from, but it's people that are, are getting ready to retire as well. And, and, and I always advocate, especially on our show is, you know, if you can buy your rental property first and then think about your own home, um, that's the way to actually get some income. So then you can start saving some of that money for your down payment when you want to buy your dream home that comes with that. So um, I definitely do see the shift happening. I think it's important for people to understand that everything happens in cycles. Um, right before the pandemic in 2019, I sold a very lucrative property. Everyone thought I was a little crazy, but my mentors guided me the right way. And it was the best 
um, sh uh, shift that we did because it was obviously not only a downfall of money that we needed, but it was perfect timing because we already knew that recession was coming. No one can can tell when it's exactly going to happen, but there's just so many. Um, I always call them like symptoms when you're about to get sick. If someone's getting a cold, they have a runny nose. You know, their eyes are getting watery. You know, they're getting the flu or something, right? So same thing goes with the real estate market. You can tell when it's either oversaturated and overpriced, and so when is the best time to sell and buy and keep and, and kind of understanding that every market is special. So I always tell people before you dive into it, get to know the market as much as possible and look if possible, what the cycles have been prior during a good time and during a recession. Yeah, great advice. Paula, what, uh, what do you think here? Sure, I am. Uh, overall, I'm very bullish on the residential market and very I, I think there's going to be some, some pain happening in the commercial market. Uh, but in terms of the residential market, first of all, I'll, I'll give the caveat that I don't believe that there is a any such thing as a national real estate market. There are only many, many, many local markets. And so the real estate market in Topeka, Kansas is going to necessarily be different than what's happening in Indianapolis uh, versus Cincinnati versus Birmingham. So with that said, uh, what we've seen is that there, there's low supply, there's low inventory in most major markets. Um, and that's in, in part because there's been supply disruptions. So lumber is very, the price of lumber is spiked right now. Lumber is extremely expensive, which makes both new construction and uh, renovation far more expensive than it was. Now that's a result, the spike in lumber prices is a result of the pandemic. Um, and so that's going to soften a bit once, uh, you know, once the pandemic is over and those, the manufacturing um, supply and manufacturing goes back to where it was in pre-pandemic levels. Um, you know, once we start seeing more new housing starts, once we start seeing more renovation permits pulled, um, at that point, I think supply and demand will be able to match each other more closely. But what we're seeing right now is due to the supply disruption, we're seeing the spike in prices because there's just more demand than there is supply. And um, I wouldn't, as a buyer, I wouldn't worry about that because even though prices are spiking, that that doesn't necessarily um, mean that we're due for a crash. Uh, what happened in 2008 was that people were over leveraged. And what we're seeing now is that the majority of buyers are very well qualified buyers with, with high down payments. So you're not seeing um, a debt bubble form the way that we did in 08. So the the long and short of that the takeaway from that is um i believe that housing price residential housing prices will continue to rise but not necessarily at quite the same uh not necessarily at the same pace of growth as they have been for the past year yeah i i definitely have seen a lot of people really kind of buying into the hype and uh, going in with with very high offers, you know, 20% above list price on homes. And for some people, that may be fine. But for other people, I think it really does come down to understanding your budget, knowing what you truly can afford, I would caution anyone, uh, you know, not to overpay, uh, and get into a situation where you are house poor, you know, you've got a, a great house, but you've spent every penny in your bank account and in your savings in order to purchase a home. If you would be stretching your budget to buy right now, I would say wait. But if you can afford 
uh, to buy a home. Um, certainly, as Paula mentioned, you know, you're going to be selling maybe an existing home at a high price, and also buying your next home at, at perhaps a relatively high price, depending on where you plan to live. So it is tricky. And, and as Paula mentioned, the, the markets are very, very different depending on where you are. So working with somebody who really understands the market, if you're moving into a new area that you're just, you know, you're not familiar with it, maybe you're relocating for work or for family, uh, I would recommend getting the advice of a, a local real estate agent who understands what's going on in the market and is a good negotiator right now. So, um, Natalie, you mentioned working with a mentor when it comes to real estate. Tell me a little bit more about that. Would you recommend that folks find a mentor for real estate? Yes. Uh, just actually, even before you asked that question, I was thinking about you say when you find a good realtor. So this is also a way you could find people that you want to work with is I always ask the broker the realtor that, you know, the first question is, do you actually invest in real estate? Because we obviously know there's many people in the field that um, are, are, that's just what they do. They just sell and they get their commission. But for me, that's such an important question to ask because then they know what you're looking for. Or at least they can um, pin, you know, point out things that would be a good investment as opposed to someone that's just making the sale. And yes, if you could find mentors in your area, I think that's crucial too, because sometimes we tend to want to listen to, you know, there's a lot of free information out there. So I always tell people, you know, be extremely cautious of where you're getting your information now. I mean, that's one great thing that you can get free and inf free information, but it isn't always accurate or value. And just like Paula said, every market is different. So when I'm investing in a, like Kansas city is an area, right. So that I do invest in. And so it's completely different than Los Angeles, right? So for me, finding the right mentor, which I've been with for now more than eight years, um, is very helpful because you might be hearing the advice from other people saying it's the wrong time to sell right now. And it's like, well, it's a different market, right? And you want someone that is extremely knowledgeable in the area. Um, and I think with a mentor too, it's not necessarily someone that's going to guide you. It's just someone to also have them hear you out. And that way you can make the right decision. They're not there to necessarily hold your hand or, you know, give you the advice because ultimately you're the one responsible for your financial actions. But I like being able to have not only someone that's, you know, older than me that has seen many, you know, markets, I've been investing now for over 14 years. So I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit more, I'm no longer the, the newbie, I guess you can say, but my mentor has been investing for 30 years now, right? So they've seen different cycles. And I think that's something that's extremely important when someone is searching for a mentor um, is what is their credibility? What type of experience have they had? What kind of portfolio do they have? Ask those questions. Um, and especially if you're working with a team of like realtors, loan officers, ask those questions. Do you invest? And if so, where? Because they can be upfront and say, yeah, actually I do. And they'll, they'll let you know that this duplex is better than that one single house dwelling that you were thinking about for as a, as a rental, or if Airbnb is actually not a good area because of zoning in certain places in, in Southern California, it's horrible for Airbnb. So, um, you know, those are the things that I think people need to really start asking those questions and not be afraid, um, you know, to get those answers to help you make, make the right decision when it comes to investing. Great. 
Vanille, let's talk about a, a little bit about the emotional side of money. I, I'm curious what advice you might have for those who feel overwhelmed right now due to the pandemic, or maybe they're just feeling stuck financially, like, wow, I had everything going pretty well before the pandemic, and now I had to take several steps back in my financial life and, and with my financial goals and dreams. What advice would you give for those who, who are feeling stuck or a bit overwhelmed? Okay, so the first thing that I would say to people is remember that we're in the middle of a pandemic and this is a collective trauma and it's not just about the money. So one of the things that I teach isn't, even though I teach about money, it's a lot about going within the body and looking and honoring your emotions. That's the first thing, right? So if you're feeling stuck and you're feeling overwhelmed, I would actually say pause, take a break and focus on what's going on within. So the first thing that I would recommend is really starting whenever you're dealing with finances, if you're starting to feel panicked or scared or anything, just take a five minute break and just get into your body and start breathing observe where this feeling of being stuck or overwhelmed sits in your body and then just breathe into it. And if you can start sounding it out, start moving and then come back to your finances. And you can do that as often as you need to, right? So the most important thing to understand right now is that trauma actually impacts the nervous system. So when we are feeling, uh, and one of the trauma responses is to feel frozen, right? So we either go into fight or flight, we go into freeze mode, we go into fawn mode, which is people pleasing. So it's quite normal when we are in a state of trauma, which isn't a trauma, isn't always just an event that is huge. It can be little events that, hope, uh, that happen over time or an event that happens so fast, we don't have the capacity to process it. So going into lockdown almost overnight for most of us, like we weren't warned, you know, it just kind of happened. It was a very fast reaction. And maybe companies had to let go of people. So much is happening. So, and it could be also just a series of events that so much is happening that the entire nervous system is too overwhelmed to actually digest everything that is happening. So just being aware that that is trauma is the first thing. And then just practicing self-compassion with being in the body to begin with. And then being uh, observing the breath and maybe writing things down. And also a great exercise that I love to do when you're feeling stuck or overwhelmed, especially overwhelmed financially, is to just take a look at your bank account for five minutes a day. And every time you look at your bank account for five minutes a day, you get into your body, you observe your breath, but you don't try to judge yourself. You don't try to change anything. You're just simply observing. On the surface, to most people, this is like, ah, what's going on? But I promise I've worked with thousands of people and I've helped thousands of people literally change their spending habits and change how they start to relate to money with just this simple exercise. So just five minutes a day, 
don't try to judge yourself. Don't try to do anything. <laughs> Just observe your body, observe your breath, and come back again the next day. So what you're trying to do when you're doing this exercise is you're training the amygdala, the emotional center of the brain, not to react to whatever is happening financially so that you can start to reclaim your power because it's not so much about the money so that you start to change the way that you react around money. And as you change that reaction, your emotional reaction, I promise you, your nervous system will start integrating the trauma, start integrating the thoughts, start integrating the emotions, and your behavior around money will slowly start to change. Mm, that's terrific. Paula, I know you have a uh, kind of an idea about financial flexibility mm -hmm. and feel like flexibility is the only true security. Mm -hmm. How do you think that ties into our emotional well-being when it comes to finances? Mm -hmm. So I think that uh, if a person has, has financial flexibility, and I would, characteristics of that might include having a good emergency fund, having uh, either being debt free or having low or manageable debts. Um, if, you know, if a person has that, that flexibility, it creates a sense of resilience, um, you know, an inner, an inner peace and inner knowledge that comes from knowing that if you have to pivot, if you have to make changes, um, you're able to do so. And, you know, with the pandemic, for example, um, I, I think one of the most glaring examples are is that when the pandemic started, there were people who had the means to be able to move suddenly, you know, with, without planning, uh, like the pandemic began and all of a sudden people were able to move out of their New York City apartment and, and go, uh, you know, to somewhere with more space. Um, you know, they, they hadn't been planning that in 2019, but they very, very quickly could do so. Um, and there was a big distinction between those who, who at least had the choice versus those who didn't um, because they there was no way that they could pay for two rents simultaneously. And that's that's definitely a higher dollar example, but there are also sort of lower dollar iterations of this. I mean, as, as uh, you know, as simple as when the pandemic began, people who had the money to be able to stock up on food and toilet paper versus those who didn't. So being able to have those choices, um, and, and it takes sometimes it takes years to be able to build the finances that give you the ability to make those choices. But there, I think there's a little emotional relief that comes from knowing that you have those choices in front of you. Um, it gives you a, a sense of control in a situation that is outside of your control. Yeah, absolutely. And even making small bits of progress on a daily basis, weekly or monthly, sometimes even just getting started with an emergency fund or savings is enough to give you a sense of confidence mm -hmm. and feel like, you know, you have a plan, you know, uh, the direction that you're going in and it's positive. Natalie, what about you? Is there anything that you have experienced has helped uh, with the emotional side of money, um, you know, outside of, of building savings? Is there anything that you've experienced that, that folks maybe could take away as some tips? Absolutely. For those that are listening, I mean, I was looking at some of the comments. I think it's Belle Blue that man manage, uh, 
mentioned that they had to dip into their emergency funds. Um, those that are listening during this time, I tell everybody I'm taking it day by day too. I don't want people to think um, maybe because we might be better, you know, with our financial choices that we don't worry as well. And, and if we kind of, you know, go back to breathing, go back to journaling, go back to therapy, whatever it is that can help us cope with what's going on during this pandemic, I think that's really what's going to allow us to survive and then thrive in the next um, next few years. And and I always tell people the story too prior that I said the last recession, I had lost my job. I was in grad school. I had student debt. Um, I had a business as well. And I was owning property and I was afraid I was going to lose it all. But I mean, crazy enough, all that, that not only did I get through that, um, it allowed me to prepare myself literally those next five years, I started saving more. I started having that emergency fund. I made sure that I, you know, was making those right financial choices that I wasn't, and I was in my early twenties. Right. And so I think this is a way for when people are telling me that they're going through some really difficult times, I let them know that this is temporary and to take note of it. If you're journaling every day or writing what you're going through, I think that's also a way to be able to reflect back and say, you know what, five years ago I was in a different state. Right now I actually have a savings account. Right now I'm healthy. You know, I always tell people your your health is your true wealth. I've, I've had that not only personally, but with my family when you know, sometimes we take that for granted that when we are healthy, we feel like everything else is going wrong. And that's not necessarily true. So I think during this time, I think it's being able to reflect and take a real snapshot of what you're doing, whether it is, I call it having a date with yourself, but I do it every week where it's sitting down and looking at all your income, looking at all your expenses and figuring out ways not only to cut back, but where you can actually, you know, balance and have a good life and say, you know what, I'm going to treat myself here um, because you also still want to, you know, honor your the life that you do had or had prior, right? We're mourning the loss of many things, not only family members and friends, which I've lost some to COVID. Um, I think this is something that we can keep ourselves um, not just hopefully motivated, but understand that we will get through a pandemic and, and hopefully we'll be prepared for the next time there is something sure to happen because, you know, that's part of our society that recessions do happen and difficult situations happen within our own um, out of our own control. So I think that's kind of the best way I can tell people is take it day by day and, and, and connect with people that will help you stay accountable, will help you keep motivated. I mean, this is what's great about Podbeam is being able to connect with other people, listen and, and learn and being able to apply that every single day. Yeah, terrific. Let's turn our attention to some of the questions that have come in. And I would encourage participants, listeners to enter any questions that you've got. We can address personal finance issues, uh, small business issues, creating multiple streams of income, all kinds of, of different questions. Uh, you've got some great experts on this panel that can address them. So one of the questions that came in us is, do you believe we should have a savings account and emergency fund? Um, I'm curious if, if the panelists have any opinions about that. Uh, maybe let's start with Paula. Sure. Uh, well, I'll tell you what I do personally is I like to keep enough money in, um, in my checking account, actually. I keep enough in there that I don't have to closely monitor when various bills are going to get auto-paid because um, I put all of my bills on auto-payment. So... Um, I'm essentially just lazy and I don't want to constantly be checking in to see like, you know, constantly be balancing that checkbook. So I like to just keep a buffer in there in order to prevent, uh, you know, any overdrafts. Um, beyond that, 
in terms of a savings account and an emergency fund, I would I would break that down as there's an emergency fund, which ideally would be off in a, a, a different bank, a different financial institution, somewhere that's out of sight, out of mind. And then if you want to save for uh, short-term to mid-term goals, maybe you want to, um, in 2022, you are going to go fly to go to be a part of a wedding, you know, and so you want to put aside some savings for that trip. Or um, if you want to, uh, any any short-term savings goal, you, you'd like to buy a, uh, a bigger, I don't know, I'm trying to think of some luxury item. <laughs> you'd, you'd like to buy a, an aquarium for your fish. Um, you know, you have some type of savings goal. I think that that's where the, you know, putting money into the savings account for those specific short-term to midterm goals uh, comes in. Yeah, that's great. Uh, any other panelists have ideas about that one? I would say just, yes, I agree with Paula Patton is being able to have the savings and having that emergency fund different as separated, um, not just from personal experience, um, being able to tap into getting that cash. I know a lot of people, especially my clients, sometimes they'll say, well, I have enough equity in my property in case I need it. The issue with that is um, you don't always have access to it when you need it right away. And, and, and as we've seen right now, it's been taking a lot longer for people to either refinance their home, getting those HELOCs, or, or just being able to take out what they need, and especially when the um, you know, if there is a price drop in your in your neighborhood, um, that can affect whatever you're relying on. So it's always it's safe to have that additional option, right? So being able to have it in a savings account or having it in an obviously different account that won't won't have you dipping into it. Because I know um, I know many times that's happened where you're like, oh, but I really need to do this, or you know, that upgrade to the house would really be really beneficial right now. Um, but understanding that if it's not the, you know, the six months, I always tell people at least six months, um, because usually that's how long it takes people to find another job. And right now we know it's taking a lot longer for most. Um, so just having that mindset of, okay, if I don't have this amount of money now, um, I need to be a little bit more disciplined and wait. So having, having those options are really great. And it just, you could sleep better at night knowing that you can access that the next day. And, you know, it's kind of funny. I, I'm an immigrant. So a lot of my, uh, you know, family members, we, we, we fled during a civil war. So we always have this mindset of what if you can't access money in your bank, right? So knowing that you can take out some cash, have some with you as well. Um, you know, those are the things that can actually just help someone feel a little bit more secure knowing that they have access to it as opposed to relying on something that they'd have to apply for a loan or, or wait to see if they can even take anything out of their equity. Yeah, so I would think about the emergency fund as a type of savings. And so you you could have a multiple savings accounts for multiple goals. As Paula was saying, maybe, you know, you're, you're going to buy a car or you've got some, some goal or even just saving for holiday gifts. Um, you can separate that in different accounts if you like. But the, the emergency fund is sort of that special account that you really want to protect. You don't want to dip into it for anything other than a true emergency. And that definitely needs to be kept ultra safe. Typically, that's going to be in an FDIC insured bank account. Um, so yes, thank you for that question. We've got another question. Um, great panel. Thanks, everyone. I have a rental property, which was our first home we ended up keeping. I think it is at a negative cash flow considering all the upgrades and repairs we did over the years. How do I properly evaluate and make the decision whether to keep it or sell. Thanks, Laura and team. 
All right, so what do you think? We've got a home that has been uh, needing a lot of upgrades and repairs. How do you evaluate whether to sell it or keep it? Paula, let's start with you. Sure. So the first thing that I would say is that there, there may be a one or two years in which it's negative cash flow. And assuming that you have the budget to be able to uh, handle that, that's, that's fine. Um, what you want to calculate is what type of returns that rental property is going to give you over the long term. And the formula for that is a formula that's called cap rate. Now, cap rate is the capitalization rate. And conceptually, it is the dividend or the income stream that a property pays. So any asset, whether it's a piece of real estate or a stock, uh, makes returns in two ways. There's the capital appreciation, um, which is the growth in the value of that, that asset. And then there's that dividend or that income stream that it pays. And so that dividend in terms of a rental property is expressed as cap rate. Um, there are formulas, if, if you go online, you look up formulas that it, it will, it will if, if you look up that formula, um, you'll be able to see precisely how to calculate it. But just as a quick overview, what you do is you start, you're, you're looking at long-term annualized averages, right? So you're gonna start with what's the rent, minus vacancy um that gives you sort of that that you know that you're you've got your potential gross rent you subtract out the vacancy um then you subtract out operating expenses like a long-term annualized estimate of repairs maintenance property taxes homeowners insurance all of those operating costs and then you arrive at a final figure that final figure is called your net operating income and then that net operating income divided by the price of the property times 100 so that it's expressed as a percentage, that is that percentage represents the dividend or the income stream that that property is paying. So that plus some reasonable uh, estimate for how much the property will appreciate over time, I like to use just 3%, which is the historic rate of inflation, that's the total return on the property unleveraged. Yeah, so it's, it does get a little complicated, but um, those formulas are out there. You know, and I would say I've been in this position many times where I had a home that um, I ended up turning into a, a rental property. And some years it was, you know, negative cash flow, some years it was positive. You know, I would say if you're struggling to make the payment, you're, you're feeling pinched financially, uh, can't hurt to put it on the market. As we've said, this is uh, in most markets a good time to be selling. Um, but if it's something that you can maintain and you can weather, I would say, you know, think about whether it is something that you you do want to hold over the long term, you know, whether it would be a good investment for you in the long term. In some cases, you may have to just struggle through a couple of bad years. Um, but if it's got good appreciation potential, good rental potential, um, it might be worth holding on to. So it, it kind of has to do with what your personal situ situation is right now. And those formulas that Paula was talking about, you know, are you getting a return that's acceptable? Um, anybody else want to comment on on that question? Natalie, Vandalay? Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Ben. <laughs> sorry. I was just thinking, I actually have like a real life example in my life with my first property. What I had to look at to decide if I was going to keep it or not was, okay, the property was breaking even. So I wasn't exactly losing money, but I obviously wanted to make money. So I started looking at, do I want to keep this property and why? 
And the first thing I looked at was what are the prices of property like in my neighborhood? Are they going up? Are they going down? Then I learned that actually within five years, the property prices in my neighborhood had tripled. <laughs> so like, that was crazy. So that obviously meant that this was a good property and it wasn't about the actual neighborhood. That means that I could do something with the property because it's in the right location and everyone else is, um, and it's appreciating. So that's the first thing that, uh, that made me realize that I should keep the property. And then the second thing was to look at, okay, what do I want in terms of return on investment in this property? And how can I actually get that return on investment? What do I have to do with this property to basically force the rent to go up so that it's worth the rental price that I want or whatever income I want from it so that it covers the expenses, it covers everything, and I can get that return on investment. I then worked with a property, I guess, um, Basically, I don't know if you call her an interior designer or whatever, but she basically goes into homes and she tells you, these are the trends. This is what you do. If we put in this, we take out that. And how do we, and if we keep prices at this um, amount, then after that, we can rent the property for this much. And that literally just increased my return on investment uh, radically. Now the property doesn't just break even, it actually makes quite a bit of money every month. So I hope that helps. Great, Absolutely. Natalie. Yeah, and, and, and to add on to that, I think a lot of people, sometimes they go into investing in property and they have the headache of not only maybe they're not making enough money, but you know, obviously the maintenance of it. And I always tell people like, what does your property management look like? If you are, even if you're starting out, I, I highly recommend people to look at a good property manager, property management company, because that can also not only give you peace of mind at night, but um, you know, they see things that are going on in the market that you might not be, especially if you're starting out as a, a new real estate investor. Um, and for me, I like knowing that, especially if you have a good management company, they have a line of the best you know, plumbers, electricians, um, contractors. Um, so those areas will save you money because you're using people that not only they highly trust and the quality is great, but most likely give you that deal. And then on top of that, um, what look at what your tenants are, right? So maybe your current tenants are the reason why you're not liking or not liking the amount of profit you're making on that particular house, um, maybe you need to look at, see what the rents, if it's possible to rise those rents or to look for another um, possible new tenants and understanding that sometimes um, getting that professional help is really helpful um, to help you manage those properties. Because ideally you want to have not only an income producing property, but to um, purchase other properties that will help you do the same. So I think sometimes too many people, especially starting out, they want to do it all because they think that's what they can afford. Or And in the end, it's like, it's really worth it. A lot of management companies will charge you maybe 10%, depending where you are in the market. Um, and it's worth paying that knowing that you're getting top quality and not having to deal with those, you know, random 2am calls that, hey, the water pipe broke or something. So, um, you know, kind of understanding that, look at your market, look at what rents are going and find out if, if you're managing it well, because sometimes that's usually what I come in and I'll see it's it's the management. It's not happening. And so those are the things that, you know, sometimes you want to look at when you're investing. 
Yeah, that's great advice, Natalie. I can definitely second that. I managed my own rental properties for many years, and it's, it's a lot of work. Um, and all of a sudden, when you find a good property manager, and they take that burden from you, <laughs> yeah. and they, they raise the rent, and you think, gosh, I wouldn't have had the guts to charge that much rent. But exactly. because they knew the market, they were able to get enough extra rent to actually pay for themselves. So it's a win-win. And uh, if you find a good property, property manager, you want to hang on to them like uh, they're gold because they they really can help you uh, make your real estate uh, investing so much easier. And, you know, I would say when it comes to any type of investment, when you're thinking about, should I keep it? Should I sell it? I would ask myself, if I didn't own this investment today, would I buy this investment today? A lot of times we hang on to homes and, and even stock portfolios that we have simply because we own it. And we don't realize that if we simply sold it, um, it would improve our situation. Or we may realize that, wow, I've got a great thing here. And, and yeah, if I didn't own this house as a rental property, I sure would buy it as a, to make into a rental property. So you can kind of think about it from that aspect. If you were starting from scratch, is that a home that you would buy? In a lot of cases, the, the, the home that, that we use as our primary residence may not make a good rental property. It may not, you know, you might have a pool, you might have, um, you know, a lot of uh, amenities in that home that could make it a bit of a liability when it comes to being a rental property. So don't assume that just because you've enjoyed the home, that that means it's going to be a great rental property. It may not. All right. So that, we're, that's we're, such a great point, Laura. Sorry, this is Norma yeah. Jean from the Podbean team. We've got some giveaways and then we're going to wrap up as we are close to the hour to start great. our next panel. So Ronnie, if you want to jump in. Sure thing. So uh, the first thing is actually a giveaway for everybody. Uh, we have a free financial planning workbook from Laura. All you have to do is text the phrase money plan to 33444. And that is available in the chat there. Uh, for our second giveaway, this is for Natalie's uh, copy of Financially Savvy in 20 minutes. And the question here is, she had some great things to say about real estate. What did she say is the most important thing to ask a broker? ask a broker. So the first person to reply with the answer here in the chat gets a copy of her book, Financially Savvy in 20 Minutes. And say, so Natalie, you could totally give them a hit. Oh, look, we already have our first winner, winner here. <laughs> so for our winner, uh, please go ahead and email us. I'm going to put my email in the chat so you can go ahead and get uh, your contact information to us so we can go ahead and get your prize out. Go ahead and email me there. We'll go ahead and get you connected so we can get that prize going for you. For our next giveaway, this is for a free money workbook from uh, Vanille. And this is, what part of the brain affects our relationship with money? She did mention it. It starts with an A. I'm pretty sure. I don't know how to spell. <laughs> if you want to give us a hint, that's totally cool too. There we go. There's our winner. All right, so I already have my email in the chat there. So go ahead and email me directly and we'll go ahead and get you connected so that we can uh, get that prize out to you. And so thank you everyone for joining us for today's live stream uh, for our fantastic live stream uh, panel, Personal Finance in the Pandemic with Paula Pant of Afford Anything, Money Girl, Laura Adams, 
Financially Savvy in 20 Minutes, uh, Natalie Torres Haddad, and Vanille Magakwa from the Property Magicians podcast. If you joined late or want to have another listen to these amazing podcasters and experts, you can replay this panel on the Finance Podcast Week channel. Finance Podcast Week is brought to you by Podbean. We're a podcast hosting and monetization platform and home to over 500,000 podcasts. And as you're joining us for this session, you can see that we also offer the ability to live stream directly from the app to your audience. For everyone listening, uh, you can also start your own live stream for free on Podbean. The content of Finance Podcast Week is for informational purposes only, and you should not construe any such information or other material as legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. Nothing contained on our site, live streams, and podcast constitute a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Podbean or any third-party service providers to, sell, to buy or sell securities or other financial instruments. And with that, thank you so much for joining today's live stream, and we will see you in the next one. Thanks, Thank everybody. You. Bye, everybody. Bye, Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.